Today's episode is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn has smart banks of practice questions for a wide variety of high-stakes examinations. Are you a med student? They have smart banks for step one and two. Are you a resident in the field of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or anesthesiology? They have you covered with smart banks for the exams you will encounter along your journey. But this is not only for physicians. PAs and MPs can prepare for their exams using TrueLearn as well. They can even help nurses prepare for the NCLEX. Click the link in the show notes for a discount by using the code EDDIEJOM D25. Crush your upcoming exams by using TrueLearn. Welcome to the Save Your Life podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today I'm going to be discussing the aortic pulse utility index, and chances are you've never heard of this before. The reality is that I honestly had never heard of this before either, but I've been going down my rabbit hole of optimizing my management of cardiogenic shock patients, and here we are today talking about the aortic pulse utility index. First of all, for historical context, because this data is so new, I mean, the most recent papers and actually the oldest papers are from 2021. For historical context, today it's the 28th of April of 2023. Excuse me, it took me a second there to remember what month it is. I'm not too good when it comes to orientation questions with my patients because I often don't know what day of the week it is or what month it is or what day it is. So aside from that point, a lot of these data are going to be brand new and this is not medical advice on how to take care of your patients, but let's just go ahead and get started now. When we attempt to take care of patients who have cardiogenic shock, there are certain metrics and hemodynamic parameters that we try to fulfill. You know, we want to make sure that the patient is making urine, they're normal tensive, they're carrying their lactate, they're warm and perfusing other extremities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are also more advanced hemodynamic measurements that we look at these days, including CPO, and PAPI, which are two different measurements that I have covered before on my YouTube videos and on my podcast and on my website. But nonetheless, one of the things that we need to be academically honest about is the fact that when we use CPO, which stands for cardiac power output, CPO is not validated in patients with decompensated heart failure. You know, patients who go into cardiogenic shock from decompensated heart failure. Instead, it's only validated in patients who go into cardiogenic shock from acute myocardial infarction. So then the question is, what do we do to best optimize, to best calculate how we could take care of patients who have cardiogenic shock from decompensated heart failure? And this is where the aortic pulsatility index will hopefully come in and fill that void for us so we can better take care of our patients. Identification of patients with cardiogenic shock has always been quite challenging, but I always have to tip my hat to the authors of the SKY criteria for cardiogenic shock that helps us classify our patients on an A through E scale. I've discussed this in the past, but A are the patients who are at risk, B are the patients who are beginning to go into cardiogenic shock, C are those who are in classic cardiogenic shock, D are those patients who are deteriorating, and E are the patients who are an extremist. So just keep that in mind as you take care of your patient with cardiogenic shock because their prognosis is going to depend on their sky shock criteria. But on top of that, when we try to take care of our patients, the first thing we usually do is start patients on either vasopressin inotropes, other data as to how efficacious this is, or whether patients need to escalate to mechanical circulatory support. But again, going back to the whole CPO and PAPI conversation that we were having just a few moments ago, one needs a PA catheter to help manage these patients. And it's something that I commonly harp on when I discuss this cardiogenic shock topic. And in the case of cardiac power output, we use a PA catheter to get us the cardiac output so we could put it into the equation for CPO. Now, when we look at PAPI to help define what's going on with the right side of the heart, you need to obtain the numbers of the PA systolic minus PA diastolic, and you need to divide that by the right atrial pressure or the CVP. 
for the aortic pulsatility and the extrusional difference here, we also need a PA catheter to go ahead and obtain these data to obtain this number to hopefully help us manage our patient who's in cardiogenic shock. Before we continue, I really want to tip my hat to all the authors and researchers who helped come up with this new novel hemodynamic parameter that hopefully in time, because honestly, I don't think it's quite ready yet, is going to help us manage our patients with decompensated heart failure. So there's a lot of research going on in the background, and I wouldn't be able to create this video, this podcast, this content without the fruits of their labor, without the, the hard work that they put into trying to sort this out to better take care of our cardiogenic shock patients. The first question I asked myself, and I'm going to basically break this whole episode up into different questions that I've asked myself when going over these data is why should we even use API? Why don't we use the cardiac power output? And the reality is, as I mentioned before, cardiac power output is not validated in this patient population. And when I say this patient population, I mean those with decompensated heart failure. One of the reasons why it is said that we should use the aortic pulsatility index, and I'm going to quote the authors here, is that it, quote, simultaneously represents cardiac function as well as filling pressures. And this was stated by Belkin and his team, which again, these are the pioneers reporting all the first data that, that comes to API. Now, one of the limitations of API, and this is one of the things that we need to know as clinicians taking care of cardiogenic shock patients is this team by Belkin and, and his and his colleagues, one of the things that they looked at is patients who were enrolled into the escape trial. Now, to refresh people's memories as to what the escape trial was, is that was patients who were in decompensated heart failure and they received a PA catheter to help them, help them be managed or nothing at all. But one of the limitations and one of the reasons why we sometimes throw the, or I want to say throw it away, the escape trial, but one of the ways that we give it less importance is that the escape trial did not include patients who are cardiogenic shock. So when they're trying to extrapolate data from the escape trial to try to validate API, just keep in mind that, well, patients with cardiogenic shock were not included here. So that's in patients with decompensated heart failure who are not in cardiogenic shock, but now they did look at patients who are cardiogenic shock in a different paper. So outside of the escape trial, there was a different trial where they used retrospective data from the cath lab that they looked at patients who were, who were getting this more known test done and they had PA catheters placed. They basically took measurements of the different components that are needed to actually calculate the aortic pulsatility index, which I'm going to get into the calculation in just a second. Well, actually, let's get into it now. How to calculate the aortic pulsatility index. This is a pretty simple equation, but again, you need the PA catheter to actually complete the equation. And it's systolic blood pressure minus diastolic blood pressure over the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. And this is the, this is again, the reason why you need a swan. Otherwise, how are you going to get that wedge pressure? I mean, I know you could go ahead and get an LVEDP when the patient's having a cardiac cath done, but you know, it's not practical to be doing this at the bedside to measure what's going on the, with the left side. Hence, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is the way to go. Now, a basic qualm, which I hope that we're able to sort out in the future with other studies, is how is it that we are obtaining the systolic blood pressure and the diastolic blood pressure to plug into these, this equation? And the reason why I say that is because I've discussed this in the past, but if we rely on oscillometric blood pressure cuffs, we know the most accurate number on those devices is the actual mean arterial pressure and the systolic and diastolic blood pressure that populate on the monitor 
well, they're, they tend to be made up numbers, right? I mean, not exactly made up, but you guys get my point. Versus when you use an arterial line, you are measuring the direct pressure. But then, you know, when you have an arterial line, are you validating a base cell radial line, a brachial line, an axillary line, a femoral line? Those are all questions that we kind of need to think about when it comes to plugging in the numbers into this equation to give us this aortic positivity index. So after these teams did these statistical jumping jacks, well, the question is, what cutoff should be used when we plug these numbers in, the uh, systolic, metastatic, over the pulmonic capillary wedge pressure, what numbers should tell us that the patient's not going to do well? Based on this Belkin data, for cardiogenic shock, it was noted that 1.45 is the number to shoot for. Basically, if the API is greater than 1.45, the patient's chances of doing well, which were defined as freedom from advanced therapies or death, was 79%. If the API was less than 1.45, that number was just 40% at 30 days. Not good at all. Now, those were patients who are in cardiogenic shock, but what about the patients who are not in cardiogenic shock? And this was looked at in a different study. Again, all these data are linked in the show notes below, and I definitely recommend that you read these for yourself and not trust me, because again, this is not medical advice. But here, they found that the cutoff to reach this composite endpoint of death or need of heart transplantation or LVAT at six months was greater than 2.9. Okay, greater than or equal to 2.9. So you might say, okay, that number is a lot higher than, you know, the one that the one that I said before of 1.45. And yes, this is true. But it's not even the number that's kind of making me question this a little bit more. It's also the area under the receiver operating curve. Okay, and for those of you who are not statistical, uh, nerds like I am, basically what the area into the curve is, it plots the sensitivity and specificity of a test, and then it tells us how good it is. And for the sake of context, an area into the curve of 0.9 and higher is considered to be like the gold standard types of tests, right? And there's, there's an article that kind of explains this, but if your area into the curve is 0.9 or greater, the test is amazing, fantastic gold standards type stuff. If the area under the receiver operating curve is between 0.8 and 0.89, for example, then this is still an excellent test. But if it's between 0.7 and 0.79, then it's a, it's a pretty good test. It's not, not something to best excellent. It's not something that's going to be the gold standard. But anything less than 0.69 and below, it's kind of like a coin flip. It's not too sensitive. It's not too specific. It's just not the type of test that you want to base your practice on. And here it turns out that the area under the receiver operating curve for predicting that endpoint was just 0.71, which is not something to write home about. Okay. It's not, and this is the reason why I'm, I don't think that the API is ready for prime time. In CPO, if the CPO is less than 0.69, the sensitivity and specificity of a bad prognosis was just 0.58 for the area under the receiver operating curve. Again, that's almost as predictive as a coin flip. It's not a very good test at all, unfortunately. So to sell up those points, I guess we could say that an API that's greater than or equal to 1.45 in patients with cardiogenic shock means that they're going to do okay. And if the API is greater than or equal to 2.9 in patients with decompensated heart failure, then that's the best we can. More recently in, I guess it was this year, well, I guess 2022 was last year. Don't, you know, not, not all there with my dates and times. They used a, quote, validated computer simulation mod model to simulate pressure volume loops. And what they found is when they, when they ran these models and they ran hundreds of models on this computer or whatnot or whatever they used, what 
they did was that they sorted out what the pressure volume loops would look like if the patient was in cardiogenic shock from an acute myocardial infarction versus an acute decompensated heart failure with sky stage A slash B or decompensated heart failure with sky stage C slash D. They went ahead and produced some APIs for these different groups, which were bad, like wildly, wildly different from each other. And the truth is that I don't really know what to do with that data. I definitely tip my hat to the authors, but I would really like to see that work done on actual individuals who have, you know, they're not just models, right? They have complexities and they have other variables in their body that just can't be run on a computer simulation. There have been attempts to improve the validation of this and Siddiqui and, and colleagues looked at combining API with PAPI, the pulmonary artery pulsatility index, and they were trying to strengthen the prognostication of this tool. It seems like there might be some sort of benefit to doing this, but again, this is all retrospective data that has not prospectively been studied. A logical question to ask yourself is, well, is the aortic pulsatility index something that has been validated on patients who are on vasopressors and inotropes? And the short answer is no, it really hasn't. I mean, at least not in vasopressors. I had mentioned earlier that the first retrospective Belkin studies were giving patients moronone, but we haven't looked at how it works or how it's been validated in patients who are on vasopressors. So that's just something that we don't know right now. And again, this is April of 2023. Whenever you get to this video, this podcast, et cetera, this content, the data might be different. So just stay tuned. Another question we might ask ourselves is API validated in patients with acute myocardial infarction. And the short answer here is no. When you look at the Belkin studies with the Siddiqui studies, everything else that I've run into, they're only looking at patients with acute decompensated heart failure, not patients with acute MI. The data is pretty strong that we should be using CPO, cardiac power output for that patient population. Are there other uses for API that, you know, are just out there? And it turns out that, yes, there's some data from Sanchez and colleagues looking at the utilization of API to possibly diagnose severe aortic regurgitation. But again, that's not something I'm going to go into in this talk because we'll be here forever. Nonetheless, it's supposed to be been looked at to try to validate in the decompensated heart failure population. But the most important question we should ask ourselves is why can't we use API in this current state for prognostication of patients who have decompensated heart failure and cardiogenic shock secondary to that? And the first thing is that the Belkin data, as well as other data that's listed down in the show notes, it's all retrospective data that goes back to 20, 2009, uh, 2013, et cetera. I can't remember the exact dates, but you know, it's been over a decade. And our management of patients with cardiogenic shock has changed significantly over the course of our last decade with the advent of all these mechanical circulatory support devices, as well as protocols that have helped us earlier identify these patients and step up our game when it comes to patient management. We can't use these API numbers, at least in my opinion, that are in the data because again, they're not validated to real people in the real world. In addition to that, if we consider the area under the receiver operating curve of 0.73 or 0.71, which is the data that we're being, that we're currently seeing in the literature. Well, that's kind of disappointing. It is. I, I really wish that the area into the receiver operating curve, the sensitivity and specificity in 
API to be able to prognosticate and help us manage our patients. Hey, should we escalate the patient? Could we wean down the devices? Could we wean down this? Do we need to do that? Its potential right now is just limited. Hopefully, they will come out soon. That will help us better utilize this hemodynamic variable to prognosticate our patients and ultimately take better care of them. So where do we go from here? And other people looking at this, I know I can't use my particular institution because we're not wedging our patients who are in cardiogenic shock. At least I'm not routinely in my clinical practice, but I'm sure that there are institutions out there that have a, a huge amount of data that they can look into in their EMR of patients with cardiogenic shock who have a PA catheter, who have received pulmonary capillary wedge pressure readings, you know, routinely to calculate what the API is and then kind of sort out what the outcome was of that patient. Hopefully that type of data could be published soon so that we can have a better idea and then hopefully start a prospective study or at least, you know, do a sub-analysis of a prospective study of a patient group of cardiogenic shock patients from acute decompensated heart failure. The other caveat is, of course, in order to obtain these data, you do need a PA catheter. I know there are other ways of kind of estimating what's going on with the left ventricle that could possibly be used as a denominator, but that's the best we have now. And definitely a hat tip to all the authors for all their hard work in trying to solve this problem. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast, this YouTube video, however you get this content, because it's been a lot of fun to create. Thank you for your support. Have a great day. Bye.